Welcome to Ingest, the podcast series designed for primary care clinicians and brought to you by the Primary Care Society of Gastroenterology. I'm Dr. Charlie Andrews, a GP in Somerset and also a GP with an extended role in gastroenterology at the Royal United Hospital in Bath. In this episode, I'm going to be talking to you about celiac disease, which is a topic that I find absolutely fascinating. Uh, As I've already mentioned, I am a GP, but I also have an extended role in gastroenterology and I run an outpatient clinic at my local hospital, the Royal United Hospital in Bath. In this clinic, I see a wide variety of presentations from two-week weight referrals to inflammatory bowel disease follow-ups to everything in between. And we do often see a number of patients with either suspected or confirmed celiac disease. I would probably describe myself as a celiac disease geek. I find it an absolutely fascinating condition. I really enjoy educating people about it and so I'm looking forward to sharing this learning with you today. This is a podcast that goes along with our iron deficiency anemia podcast where I spoke to Dr Sophie Nelson and the reason that there is a link here is that celiac disease is a reasonably common cause of iron deficiency anemia and we should be checking for it in anyone who is found to be iron deficient because around three to five percent of these people will actually have celiac disease so it's a simple test that we can do in the community when we find that someone is iron deficient. Clearly we'll probably want to be doing further investigations however a very useful initial test that we could do would certainly be checking for celiac disease. So during today's episode, I'm going to be talking about what celiac disease is, and then I'm going to talk about when to suspect the disease. Now NICE have published guidelines on this, so you can look at NICE NG20 guidelines about when to suspect celiac disease. And if you have a look at these guidelines, I think you'll be struck by the number of situations in which we should be considering celiac disease as a diagnosis in our patients. So what we'll do is we'll talk through some of the gastrointestinal symptoms and the malabsorption picture that you can see in celiac disease. And we'll also talk about some of the really interesting non-gastric symptoms and signs that people may present with. We'll then finish off by talking a little bit about testing for celiac disease and talk about some of the common pitfalls in testing. And then also just touch on the latest update in terms of a non-biopsy pathway for celiac disease that was introduced in the middle of 2020. Now before we launch into the nuts and bolts of this session, I just want to start off by indulging an interest of mine, which is the history of medicine actually. Um, I absolutely love understanding how diseases were were identified um, and some of the thought processes behind it. So Uh, Celiac disease presents us with a fantastic example of some of these incredible steps towards understanding a disease. Now, celiac disease has been known for many years, well, thousands of years, and was first described by Arateus of Cappadocia when he described a condition that was called coliacos. And he described a disease very similar to what we might picture today with celiac disease. But really, no one knew why people developed this disease. And in fact, even moving into the 20th century, it was still unknown what was causing celiac disease. And at that time, it was seen more as a disease of children. And William Osler described a disease in which children between the ages of one and five developed a disease that was characterised by pale, loose stools, not unlike gruel or oatmeal porridge. He said that it begins insidiously and there are progressive wasting, weakness and pallor 
And then he concludes by saying that the disease is lingering and a fatal termination is common. So this was seen as a potentially fatal disease. And actually, the figures that we have from that time are that around a third of people with the disease actually died. And unfortunately, no one knew why this disease happened. And many different diets were tried to, to try to prevent this diarrhea and wasting, such as an oyster diet that is was tried in the 19th century. However, in around the 1930s, Dr. Haas carried out some research in Puerto Rico. So he looked at two populations within the, the country. So one of the populations had a high prevalence of celiac disease, and one population had a low prevalence. Now the high prevalence group was found within the urban areas, and the low prevalence group was found within the rural areas. And he looked at this and thought, well, why is this happening? And he analysed the diet of both groups. And whilst he did recognise that there was a lot more wheat being eaten in the urban communities, he unfortunately made the incorrect link and looked at what the people within the rural areas were eating, which was primarily a diet based around bananas and fruit, and decided that bananas had medicinal properties in people with celiac disease. So he got so close, but unfortunately just failed at the last line. And so following his research, a lot of people were prescribed bananas for their celiac disease. So there are pictures of children with bunches of bananas as their prescription for celiac disease in the late 1930s and early 1940s. However, the link was finally made. And this was made by a doctor in the Netherlands, so Dr. Carol Dick. So he was a paediatrician and he was working through World War II. Now towards the end of World War II, in what was called the Hunger Winter, he was looking after children on the celiac ward. And he identified that during times of starvation, their diarrhoea improved, their abdominal pain improved, and actually their weight stabilised. And he was very surprised by this. He then found that when airdrops were delivered, so food was dropped in from the air in order to support the the hospital population, uh, generally from American aeroplanes, he found that actually their symptoms worsened and he was identifying that something within those airdrops was making those children worse. And he looked at it and identified that it was likely to be wheat, so the diet was predominantly wheat-based when the airdrops occurred. And so following World War II and after further research, he published a seminal paper on celiac disease diagnosis, identifying gluten as the trigger for those with celiac disease. And so our understanding of celiac disease ever since has grown as we've understood why um, people develop this disease. And actually, it's become the most well-understood autoimmune disease that we know of. And because we know what triggers it, we have developed very effective uh, serum biomarkers to test for the disease, such as IgA tissue transglutaminase antibodies, and we also know how to manage the disease. So we have a very good understanding of celiac disease. And I think that we have a number of clinicians, including Dr. Haas, who identified a dietary component, and Dr. Carol Dick, who identified the exact protein that was causing celiac disease, for our excellent understanding now. And now, following that little jaunt through the history of celiac disease, I'd like to move on to some facts and figures about celiac disease. Now in the UK, we know that it is a common disease, probably more common than you expect. So around 1% of the population has celiac disease. However, it's also a very underdiagnosed condition. So around 70% of people with celiac disease have not been diagnosed with it. 
Now, there could be many reasons for that. For example, patients may have very few symptoms or no symptoms at all. Or they may be carrying a different diagnosis such as IBS uh, to try to explain their gastrointestinal symptoms. But we know that it's common and we know it's underdiagnosed. Another thing that we know is that it tends to pre present much later in life than one would expect. So whereas in the past it was considered a disease of childhood, we now know that the average age of diagnosis is 45 years, which means that we need to consider this condition even in older adults. And in fact, I run a gastrointestinal clinic in, the, in my local hospital, and uh, several months ago we had a, a, an 88-year-old who was diagnosed with celiac disease. Now if you look around the world, the prevalence is reasonably similar. So there's quite a lot of data for large parts of Europe which show a similar prevalence. Uh, in fact, there is some more recent data from Italy which is suggesting that the prevalence may even be edging up towards 2%. And you may be surprised when I tell you that the most prevalent place for celiac disease is a small area in the Western Sahara. There is a tribe that has a prevalence of 5%. So let's talk a bit about what this common yet underdiagnosed condition actually is. Well, it's described as an autoimmune enteropathy, which basically means that it's an immune-mediated me condition affecting the bowel. However, I think that that name is quite misleading because this is actually a disease that, yes, is an autoimmune condition, and we know an awful lot about how the autoimmunity occurs. However, it's certainly not a bowel condition per se. It's actually a multi-system condition, and I hope that by the end of this podcast episode, you'll appreciate and be fascinated by the wide variety of presentations that you can see in celiac disease. There are three ingredients that are needed in order to trigger celiac disease. The first is gluten, the second is genetic susceptibility, and the third is a genetic trigger. Now I'm going to break that down and start off by talking about gluten. So gluten is a storage protein that's found in various grasses and grains, and in particular wheat, barley and rye, and is an essential component of the celiac disease response. So the person must be eating gluten in order to trigger celiac disease. The second is genetic susceptibility. And we know that HLA-DQ2 and DQ8 are found in over 90% of people with celiac disease. And so this underlying HLA type is required in order to develop celiac disease. You'd have thought then that it would be quite a good test for celiac disease, but unfortunately it's also present in about 40% of the general population as well. And so clearly there's something else at play that triggers the disease. And that seems to be this genetic trigger. As with other autoimmune conditions, there is likely to be some sort of genetic trigger that leads to the disease to develop in people who are susceptible, who, for example, carry the HLA type that we talked about just now. And interestingly, there is a very close link between several other autoimmune conditions and celiac disease. So someone with type 1 diabetes or autoimmune thyroid disease or autoimmune liver disease has about an 8 to 10% risk of having celiac disease as well. So clearly there is some overlap in the autoimmune process occurring within these conditions. So now that we know some of the underlying causes of celiac disease, let's have a look at what's actually going on within the body when people develop celiac disease. So if we think about a patient who has celiac disease, who eats a, a very tasty croissant, for example, that's stuffed full of gluten, the croissant will reach the small bowel, where the gluten will be absorbed across the brush border. And it will then be broken down into peptides 
by tissue transglutaminase, which we're going to come across quite a lot later on. It will then be presented to the immune system. These peptides that have been broken down will be presented to the immune system, which in a susceptible individual with the right HLA type and with a genetic trigger that has brought on the disease, it will cause the activation of the immune system and it will do two things. So the first is that it will, it will activate our innate immune system. So if you cast your mind back to your medical school years, the innate immune system is our rapid response, recruitment of white cells, lymphocytes to an area, and it will cause inflammation within the bowel wall. And so this leads to several of the, several of the symptoms that we're going to come across later. So the gastrointestinal symptoms, the bloating, the pain, the diarrhea, some of that will be caused by this innate immune response. It will also cause the villus atrophy that we commonly see in people with celiac disease as that brush border is damaged by the underlying inflammation within the bowel wall. And so this can lead to some of the common features of malabsorption that we see in celiac disease. But at the same time, something else is going on. So our adaptive immune system is being triggered. And this is the system that creates antibodies. So this is where it gets really interesting with celiac disease. And this is where that autoimmunity comes in. So antibodies targeted against gluten ingestion and the breakdown of gluten proteins will be created. So for example, tissue transglutaminase antibodies will be created. And also gliadin antibodies, for example. And these will then circulate within the blood. This can cause symptoms and signs far distant from the bowel. So, for example, it can lead to conditions within the skin, which we'll come across later, and also the central nervous system. So we'll talk about that a little bit later when we're talking about when to suspect celiac disease. But this is really fascinating. It shows that this disease, whilst it does affect the bowel in many, many people, it actually is a multi-system condition, and we need to keep that in mind when we're thinking about celiac disease. So let's now think about when we should be suspecting celiac disease. And as I said before, NICE NG20 have very lengthy guidance on when to suspect celiac disease. And I'm just going to run through some of the commoner signs and symptoms that we may come across. So firstly, let's think about gastrointestinal symptoms of celiac disease. So these include abdominal pain, bloating and diarrhoea. And in severe cases, this may be steatorrhea as a result of poor fat absorption. Now, you may have noticed that a lot of those symptoms are very similar to those of irritable bowel syndrome. And actually, a large study was carried out almost 10 years ago, looking at the entire GP database. And it was looking at people with a diagnosis of celiac disease. And it was trying to work out whether these people had carried a prior diagnosis of IBS before celiac disease was actually diagnosed. And it found that around 16% of people with celiac disease had previously been diagnosed with IBS. And it's understandable, the symptoms are very similar. But it does remind us that we need to be considering celiac disease in anyone who we are working up for irritable bowel syndrome. And so an essential part of your IBS workup should be a celiac screen. Now on that note, something you could think about doing would be a quality improvement project looking at your own practice. So you could search your own practice for all patients with a diagnosis of irritable bowel syndrome and look at whether they've had a celiac screen done. Now, whilst gastrointestinal symptoms are, are relatively common in people with celiac disease, and I would really want to highlight and urge you to test for celiac disease in people with IBS type symptoms, 
alongside obviously several other investigations that you may want to do. Only around half of people with celiac disease have gastrointestinal symptoms as we've just talked about and a lot of people won't have that abdominal pain, bloating and diarrhoea or if they do it might be very mild and actually malabsorption features are very common in people with celiac disease and by that I mean predominantly iron deficiency so you may find that a celiac patient presents with iron deficiency anemia so they may be fatigued so people who are very tired we should be considering celiac disease in and if you do find that someone is anemic it's really an important test to do to try to identify whether celiac disease could be contributing and now whilst iron deficiency is the most common type of deficiency in celiac disease others such as folate and B12 deficiency may occur as well. And so whilst a microcytic anemia might be the most common type of presentation in a patient who's suffering from malabsorption as a result of celiac disease, we should also just be wary of macrocytic and also normocytic anemia in these people. Easy bruising may be a feature of celiac disease in people who are not absorbing fat-soluble vitamins. Recurrent mouth ulcers are often seen and let's not forget osteoporosis. So the vast majority of our calcium that we consume from our diet is absorbed in our small bowel. And if we damage that brush border as a result of celiac disease, then we can find that people struggle to absorb calcium and vitamin D levels may be low. So we should be considering this in people with unexplained osteoporosis. So we've now looked at the gastrointestinal side of this disease. We've looked at some of the symptoms that you might find and that obvious IBS overlap. And we've also looked at some of the effects of that villous blunting, that damage to the absorbing surface of the bowel as a result of the innate immune response and how that can result in deficiencies in most commonly iron, but various other important vitamins and minerals. We're now going to look at this absolutely fascinating area of celiac disease, which is the extra-intestinal features of the condition. As I've alluded to before, this is a multi-system condition, not a, a gastrointestinal condition per se. And this is because of the circulating antibodies found in celiac disease, predominantly that to tissue transglutaminase. Now, tissue transglutaminase is, is certainly found within the bowel, However, we now are developing a better understanding of this condition and we now know that there is tissue transglutaminase expressed in various other tissues of the body. So in the skin, the reproductive tract and the central nervous system. So if we break that down and we look at some of the skin manifestations of celiac disease, the main one we should be thinking about here is dermatitis herpetiformis. So because tissue transglutaminase 3 a subtype of tissue transglutaminase is found within the skin. People with celiac disease can develop a very itchy rash, which is predominantly on the extensor surfaces of the legs and the arms and the buttocks. And it's extremely itchy. And although it may respond to a steroid to a certain extent, it generally won't go away unless that person stops consuming gluten. Around 90% of people with dermatitis herpetiformis will also have celiac disease and a large number of them will not have any bowel symptoms at all. And so we just need to be a bit aware about itchy rashes and celiac disease. Now, thinking about the reproductive system, 
Tissue transglutaminase 2, one of the subtypes, is found within the reproductive system. And so we find in people with celiac disease who are undiagnosed, there is a higher miscarriage rate and, and also a higher unexplained infertility rate. And so in these circumstances, we should again be thinking about celiac disease. And finally, the central nervous system can be affected by celiac disease in some individuals. So a small number of people with celiac disease may develop peripheral neuropathy and something called glutenataxia. So we know again that tissue transglutaminase, a subtype of this, is found within the central nervous system. And so those circulating antibodies can interact with these and cause this ataxia. Now, in Sheffield, they looked at a large group of patients who had unexplained ataxia, and they tested them all for celiac disease. And they found that actually quite a large proportion of them tested positive for serum biomarkers of celiac disease. And actually, putting them onto a gluten-free diet did seem to help a proportion of these people. And so we understand now that celiac disease can cause glutenataxia, so generally a lower limb ataxia. And so whilst this might be a rare presentation, again, it's, it's important for us to understand that this condition is certainly not one just of the bowel. And obviously, it can cause significant symptoms elsewhere. So now that we've looked at some of the gastrointestinal signs and symptoms, the features of malabsorption as a result of the disease process, and we've also looked at some of those fascinating extraintestinal features of the disease, let's think a bit about some of the at-risk groups when we should really be thinking about celiac disease. And NICE does recommend that in these groups we do consider testing for celiac disease. So for example, if patients have a first-degree relative of celiac disease, they carry a 10% risk of having the disease themselves. And so we should really be testing for first-degree relatives of those with celiac disease. And actually, if you diagnose someone with celiac disease, it's probably an important message to give to them that they should think about their first-degree relatives being tested as well, because it's possible, well, a 10% risk, that they could also have the condition. We should also be testing people who have other autoimmune conditions, such as type 1 diabetes and autoimmune thyroid disease, as I mentioned earlier. And there are a couple of syndromes, so Down syndrome and Turner syndrome, where we should be considering testing for celiac disease as well. Now finally, let's just think about that presentation in infants and children. So an infant might present with celiac disease when they are being weaned, and they may start to falter in their growth. And that could be a sign that we should be checking them for celiac disease. And in particular, if there are other risk factors present, such as a family history, you definitely want to be looking at and thinking about celiac disease. Now, in teenagers, it's important to think about celiac disease in those who have short stature and delayed puberty. Obviously, in conjunction with lots of other types of conditions that can cause that. But certainly, it should be something that we put into the mix and think about. Now, I've thrown an awful lot of signs and symptoms at you there, and I hope that whilst that might feel quite overwhelming, you take away from this that celiac disease is a very broad condition, presenting in lots of different ways, and we need to be thinking about it in a number of different situations. And I would urge you just to have a little look at the NICE guidance on this, so NICE NG20, just to review some of the times where they recommend that we test for celiac disease, and some of the situations where we at least consider it as a diagnosis. 
Now, once you've considered celiac disease as a possible diagnosis, you've really done the hard work, but you still need to test for it. So let's just think about how we can test for celiac disease and some of the common pitfalls in testing. So testing starts with a blood test, and that blood test is a serum marker of the disease, and it's identifying those circulating antibodies created in people who have developed celiac disease. And those antibodies are IgA tissue transglutaminase antibodies. This is the most commonly tested for antibody in the UK. However, in some areas, it may be endomysial antibodies that are tested for. So if IgA tissue transglutaminase antibodies are not available, then some areas may be doing endomysial antibodies. And really, they're picking up very similar things. And they are fantastically sensitive and specific tests. So they have a very good sensitivity and specificity for celiac disease in the region of 95%. So really good first line tests. And we can feel pretty confident that if a patient comes back with a negative tissue transcutaminase antibody, for example, we can be fairly confident that they don't have celiac disease. However, that being said, there are a couple of pitfalls in testing that we just need to be aware of. So the first one is the patient should be consuming enough gluten before testing for celiac disease. So the advice that we have is that patients should be consuming gluten for at least six weeks before being tested for the disease. And what should that entail? Well, difficult to say exactly how much they should be having, but really one or two slices of bread every day would probably be sufficient, um, or some gluten with every meal. The second pitfall is IgA deficiency. So unfortunately, IgA deficiency is more common in people with celiac disease than it is in the general population. So around 2% of celiacs will be IgA deficient. Now, our tests rely on IgA levels being normal. So IgA tissue transglutaminase antibody relies on a normal IgA level. And yet celiacs have a higher risk of being deficient in this. So Often labs will check for total serum IgA as well, but it's often worth checking whether that is happening so that we're not missing patients with celiac disease. So that might be something that you want to find out from your own lab in your own area. However, if your patient is IgA deficient, the test that you would want to do instead would be an IgG tissue transglutaminase antibody. So once you've tested your patient for celiac disease, the next thing that you're going to do is refer them on to the hospital and the specialist will carry out an endoscopy and they will look at the duodenum and they will look for the characteristic signs and signs of celiac disease, which is flattening of the villi within the duodenum. And they will take biopsies from the duodenum to look for that characteristic flattening of the villi, but also a large number of white cells found within the wall of the bowel. Uh, and this will help them to make a firm diagnosis of celiac disease. Now that being said, in June 2020, a non-biopsy pathway was brought out by the British Society for Gastroenterology. Uh, and this pathway was probably introduced in part as a result of the difficulties around endoscopy due to COVID-19. But also because we know that in certain patients who have very high levels of tissue transglutaminase, as well as another serum biomarker of celiac disease, such as endomysial antibodies, the positive predictive value for that is extremely high for celiac disease. 
So the guidance states that in people who are under the age of 55, who do not have any red flags that need to be investigated further, who have a tissue transglutaminase level greater than 10 times the upper limit of normal, as well as being endomysial antibody positive, a diagnosis of celiac disease can generally be made without a biopsy. There's a very good paper that was published in 2020 looking at the positive predictive value of this uh, pathway and it found that the positive predictive value for patients who fulfilled those criteria that I've just mentioned was 98%. So a very robust pathway. I know that in the area where I work the diagnosis is still made by the gastroenterologist so for example if I have a patient with a raised tissue transglutaminase I will always refer on to the gastroenterologists and they will decide whether a biopsy is required or not. So I would urge you to familiarise yourself with the process in your own area. Now if you've made it this far, thank you very much. I've thrown an awful lot of information at you and I hope that my enthusiasm and interest in this condition has come across to you today. I think it is an absolutely fascinating condition and it's far commoner than, uh, than you might think. So 1% of the population have it and it's underdiagnosed. So I think we need to go out there and really try and find these individuals so that we can help them uh, avoid some of the, the, the risks of celiac disease such as anemia, osteoporosis, for example. I hope that another key message that's come across is that the presentation of celiac disease is so varied and it's certainly not a condition just of the bowel. However, having just said that, so important that in anyone with IBS type symptoms, if we are working them up for a diagnosis of IBS, that we check for celiac disease. Another message that I really hope you'll take home from this is that testing really does begin with us just thinking about the disease, but that once we've done that, we need to be wary of falling into the pitfalls from testing. So making sure that our patient has been consuming gluten for at least six weeks before the test, and if they haven't, telling them that they need to do that before you test for it. And while that might be a hard sell, I think it's really important that we do accurate testing in patients. And finally, just be aware of your local pathway, uh, and just be aware that there is a non-biopsy pathway out there, which is being practiced across the UK. Um, and that just familiarising yourself with how your local gastroenterology department makes a diagnosis of celiac disease. And finally, all that's left to say is thank you very much for listening today. Mm -hmm.